vocation in flourishing human life today with Miroslav Volf. Before I bring him to the podium, here are a few final details you might want to know about. Following the lecture, we'll have a time for question and answer that will be facilitated by Dr. Ellison Escalante. Dr. Escalante is a pediatrician and author with, and I love this, degrees in both medicine and medieval and renaissance history. <laughs> Earlier this morning, facilitated a wonderful interview with Dr. Wolf. So, Allison, we're delighted for your participation in the event. Thank you. You can record questions on the note cards that are on your tables, and we'll gather those up, and then Allison will curate those in the Q&A. So, friends, welcome. I have spoken long enough. I thank you for your presence here today. We're honored you're here, humbled that you joined us, and now join me in welcoming Dr. Miroslav Wolf. So I'm immensely grateful to be here. Can you hear me well there? Uh, immensely grateful to be here in the great city of Chicago. I have uh, left back home one envious woman, uh, which is my wife, uh, who loves Chicago and uh, could never get, when she moved to Boston from Chicago, could never get over that uh, tragic descent. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's, it's wonderful to be, uh, to be here. Um, I'm thankful to Bob and to Aaron for the invitation and for you all to, who have come. I, I have to tell you that um, uh, I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable here uh, right now. And I'm uncomfortable because I'm holding a, a mic. If you ask one of my children, one of my boys, they will tell you, if you were to tie Dad's hands behind his back, he would not be able to say a single word. Uh, so you're going to get half a speech. <laughs> because I can't do very much with this hand. Uh, so, <laughs> um, But um, I, I hope that would uh, still give us enough food for thought and for our discussion later on. Uh, I'm going to make sure that this thing is set right. Okay, there we go. So my, my title of the talk uh, today is The Relationship Between Calling and Flourishing. And as Aaron has uh, suggested, most of us associate calling with our everyday kind of uh, work. And maybe we associate it also with a particular kind of everyday work. Not everyday work, like all everyday work. Uh, do, we, we don't experience all everyday work as calling. It kind of has to have a sense of certain uh, enjoyment or certain identification with the, with the calling, and then we feel, okay, I found the calling. I feel kind of at home in the work that I am uh, uh, that I'm doing. Now, in and that's a, that's a very long-standing tradition to think about uh, think about calling, uh, but that tradition draws on a more ancient uh, tradition uh, of calling. And there it tends to be tied to the very character of our lives. And indeed, the genius of the calling um, vocabulary is to tie that which we do in the world, uh, our particular tasks that we have and ways we accomplish them, and the very character of our existence, the orientation of our lives. And that's why I think that this engagement with vocation ties to flourishing, and that's why it matters so profoundly, because calling is about who we are as human beings and what our role in the world is. Calling is also about what we do in the light of that identity and our purpose. And calling is about succeeding, but succeeding, I think, not so much in this or that endeavor that we undertake, but about succeeding in the great endeavor that is our life itself. We tend not to think of success in those terms, and yet I think we are invited precisely by the reflection on calling to do so. So let me... Let me elaborate a little bit on the character of calling. You see, I'm in trouble already. I can't turn my pages. <laughs> um, in the Bible, as I suggested, in the biblical traditions from which the uh, vocabulary of calling comes, uh, there are two traditions of calling. And one kind of calling, the one that which, which we are more familiar, is exemplified 
in the figure of Moses, the great liberator of the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. You all know the story very well. Uh, Moses is puzzled, and when he comes close, he realizes uh, that it's not something unusual that's happening here, but something transcendent is going on there. And then he calls, hears a voice from burning bush calling him. And that becomes an occasion which orients his life toward becoming, to getting a really great job, right? Basically, it was a, it was a call to a job. Uh, it was a very large, complex job of being a leader of the entire nation. But it was tied to this very specific um, task that he had to accomplish, uh, be the one who would lead the people of Israel from the slave, slavery in Egypt. So that's the one type of uh, a call. Prophets were called like that, maybe apostles were called like that, folks of this sort. But there's this other call, and I want to concentrate most of my comments on this second type of call, that is often forgotten, but that is actually uh, fundamental. And it is exemplified in the call that was issued to the first couple in the Bible, recorded in the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve. You will recall the story. God comes to the garden, but the first humans, having broken the covenant with God, they hid. And then come the words of God, where are you, Adam? Where are you? Are you? Now, that's a call in form of a question, and I'll return to, to this. But I want to suggest to you that behind both of these calls, calls to Adam and Eve because they weren't where they were supposed to be, and call to Moses because he was to go to achieve certain, make certain um, uh, projects his own, both of these calls um, are echoes in the biblical traditions, of a silent and existence-constituting claim on human life that God has. They both assume that we humans are not simply of this world, but that we humans are stretched between two worlds, mundane, ordinary world, and the transcendent world. We are in the wilderness tending our flock, but out of the burning bush comes a call from somewhere else. We are in some kind of a little paradise of our own, and there also or have abandoned the paradise, and the call comes from outside that space. And the presumption is that human fulfillment can be found only when we heed the transcendent call. That's only when we find our fulfillment that is in relationship to transcendence. Not transcendence outside of this world, but the way in which transcendence, in which God bears upon lives, life in this world. You know, I, I mentioned uh, here, I'm a Christian theologian, so I mentioned Adam and, uh, Adam and Eve and Jewish tradition as well. But I should add that great um, religious tradition, all great religious traditions, I would say all major world religions and not just the Brahmic faiths, they operate what a critic of those traditions has called two worlds account of reality. That reality isn't just made up of one world, <laughs> mundane reality see, but that the reality, entirety of reality, is constituted of two worlds, of transcendent realm, and different religions construe it in different ways, transcendent realm and mundane realm. And in fact, that the fulfillment in, in mundane realm can come only when our commitments to transcendent, when our commitments to mundane realm are, are aligned with the transcendent in some ways, you can say, when mundane realm begins to reflect the character of the transcendent realm. Now, that's fairly 
abstract, and I want to just uh, uh, kind of point to you, give you a little window into how the call of God fits into the structure of human life as it has been advocated by great religions, indeed great philosophies, like Plato's philosophy would be a good example of that, so is Buddhism and so forth. I'll stay with the Christian tradition, I'm not Christian, obviously other religious traditions often, they have a good deal of arguments with one another, but at the center of these arguments is often the character of transcendence, what is this transcendent realm, what's the nature of that transcendent realm, and how it relates to mundane realities. And obviously, that defines much then of our lives as well. So, this is by the way of introduction. So, let's look at that, just a little bit more at that call that came to uh, Adam and Eve as well. The call at the dawn of history. Where are you? That was the question. That was the call. It's a searching question that God addressed into emptiness of the paradise. They hid. They were not to be seen. And then the question comes, where are you? God calls because humans aren't where they're supposed to be. And you see already a certain alienation, not just alienation from God, but also alienation from the world is implicit in that question. I'll return to that at the end of my talk. Had Adam and Eve been where they were supposed to be when God used to come in the cool of the day? They would have had meeting with God. They would not need it, have needed the call. But in a sense, when they hid, they were already east of Eden. They were already, they put themselves already outside of that paradise. Now, the central question of that story is, why was that the case? And I would make a point also to now and, and later, that one of the main reasons why the tree, forbidden tree, was in the middle of the garden, and why the command not to eat, was there, is to underscore that everything else was given to them. That they cannot take everything else for granted. It's so easy for us to take everything for granted. When we have when we are barred access to something, it reminds us that everything isn't simply there for us to take. I think that the, this forbidden tree was not because God had some perverse desire to taunt him with this particular little thing that, that's there, right? Um, uh, and he would give everything else, but uh, I've got to be the big boss, and I'm going to keep it that way by <laughs> prohibiting this. And if you transgress, you're going to be in a big trouble just because you transgressed my commandment. I think that's a, that's a, that's a wrong-headed way to read that story. I think the way to read that story is to say, I want to remind you that the entirety of what is, is given, is a gift. Isn't just there, served existence that you can then take in whichever way you want, but it is a gift to you. Now, again, I'll return to this idea of the rediscovery of the world as a gift, as a condition of possibility of flourishing. But when we do not see the world, we exile ourselves from the world. And this is the universal situation in which we find ourselves. We refuse, we don't recognize God as a generous giver. We don't recognize the world as a gift that God has given to us. Now, God's call comes in that situation. Adam and Eve heard the call, but couldn't quite do much about it. Question for us today, and as I was reflecting on this passage, I thought, um, well, some of that, some of our situation is like that of Adam and Eve. We hear God's call, 
but we aren't quite capable of heating it. We may try, maybe just see it as something valuable, but we don't even try to heat it. Um, and it's a call, right, to the life that really is life, to the flourishing life. But I think that our predicament isn't just that we, isn't that we can hear it, but that we don't heed it. Often our predicament is that we can't even hear it. Maybe that's simply because we are so busy, because so many things clamor at us, so that the call of our humanity cannot come through, but is ground, drowned by all the various calls that clamor for our attention. But there's also another piece of it, and this is specific to us moderns. A German philosopher by the name of Peter Sloterdijk has famously said that modernity is an age in which only the world can be the case. Modernity is an age in which only the world can be the case. That's a kind of atheist proposition, right? Uh, the only reality is this one reality which we inhabit. There is no transcendence, so therefore I can't even hear that call. But maybe given that modern world, certainly America, but also other modern uh, countries, uh, tend to continue to be religious, maybe we should say that modernity isn't defined by the fact that only the world can be the case, but that we live as if only the world were the case. And we live it, whether we are religious or not, as if the entirety of our lives revolves around world. And I've come to think that the mother of all temptations, which is equally hard to resist in abundance and in want, is to believe and to act as if human beings lived only by mundane realities, as if human beings lived by bread alone, as if our entire lives should revolve around creation, improvement, distribution, and securitization of worldly goods, material and immaterial. This was the temptation into which Adam and Eve succumbed in the Garden of Eden, and this is, by the way, the temptation which Jesus resisted. This was his first temptation. Remember what uh, uh, the story of Jesus' temptation. He fasted for 40 days. After 40 days, the tempter comes, uh, comes to him and says, turn these stones into bread. And the response was, but human beings do not live by bread alone. Now, in the course of modernity, we have made our greatest temptation into the chief goal of our lives and main purpose of our major institutions. That's true of the state. That's certainly true of the market. That's true of science and technology. And that's true also, in many ways, of education. They all are organized around securing, creating, distributing, and securing ever new and ever more beautiful and creative material goods. Stated in terms of Jesus' first temptation, today's main purpose of our lives is to turn stones into ever more and better bread, forgetting that human beings do not live by bread alone. Now, I'm sure in our time uh, for question and answer period, uh, you, you may want to push 
on the very radical nature of this uh, of, of this claim, and uh, I think it may be an interesting conversation to to be had. But let me try to explain a little bit, uh, in part, how that happened. And I don't think the issue is simply that one doesn't believe in two two worlds. I think, or in, in God, uh, that one thinks only in terms of uh, the nature of the, of the world. I think what has been a significant uh, element in development is that we have um, what some sociologists call privatized our own good. A good life is no longer a shared good, but is a private possession and private decision of which I alone am the master. Almost like there is no good life that is good for everyone. There is no flourishing life that is flourishing for everyone. But each one of us has to find our own way. So, example. A sociologist, uh, uh, Hartmut Rosa, um, has written quite a bit about it. uh, Others uh, as well. So, if the kid comes to you, uh, he's maybe, she is maybe... uh, 12, 14, 15, dad, mom, what should, I, what should I do with my life, you know, or they wouldn't quite put it that way, right, but it'll come out in the conversation, and then you may give, uh, give them advice uh, a little bit, you may think about the nature of their, uh, char- their, their, their character, their propensities, and uh, uh, their gifts that they might have, uh, where they can pour their energy, and so forth, you, you kind of analyze the nature of the person, and then would say, but my son, my daughter, just make sure that you follow your dream. Dream that you have trumps everything. And that's how we think of our lives as well. We, we want to follow our dream. And we somehow think that this dream that we have is kind of specifically ours. And yet when you analyze our dreams, they, they line up quite a bit, and they're kind of echoes of one another's uh, dreams, right? I'm going to be famous, I'm going to be famous in what way? And then you spell out and you see that you look pretty much like um, hundreds of thousands of other kids, which is specifically your dream that you have, right? There's a kind of a um, dishonesty, <laughs> a lack of self-refractiveness at the very bottom, very hard. Uh, of it. But that's not so much the problem. It's okay. We, we are not always self-aware of what we are. But what, what is a problem is that as a consequence, we spend and a, and a dream ends up being also something that we can renegotiate as we go along, right? It's not a dream that you have when you're 16, right? So I tell uh, folks, uh, you know, I knew at 16 that I would be a theologian. And I, lo and behold, I am a theologian, and I love it, right? Now, this career path is not a usual one in these days, right? Uh, whatever your vocation is, you would expect to meander. You, in fact, you would kind of expect that your dreams will change, and whatever your dreams you change, you may shift from one to, to the other, and that's perfectly fine, which I think it, it is. But because we think in those terms, what we agree as a culture is not on what our dreams should be, but we agree on what resources are necessary to pursue those dreams. And then the entirety of our cultural common endeavor, state, market, and so forth, and education in particular, becomes organized around this. What are the resources that we need? Well, we need economic resources. So you need to be able to earn money. You need, for that, certain educational uh, resources. You need certain reputational resources. You need resources of uh, good looks, at least. Uh, that's what we think these days that you, that you do. Aesthetic capital, uh, reputational capital, monetary capital, and so forth. Various forms of capitals that we, that we acquire, and we dedicate a good deal of our attention to acquiring these modes of capital. Think for a moment. How much time do you spend acquiring these four modes of capital that I have mentioned? Monetary, educational, reputational, 
and aesthetic. <coughs> Analyzing this situation in which we find ourselves, sociologist Hartmut Rosa has said our situation it is like that of a painter who spent all of his time or her time trying to get himself a really great studio which has good light, uh, get good uh, paint brushes and paints and uh, get an easel, easel and all easel? Is that, is that what I'm calling it in English? Uh, whatever you need, all the necess necessary things and means that a painter needs in order to paint, but he never or she never gets to paint because he's obsessed so much with the, with, 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 with the, with the means toward painting. And as it turns out, uh, much of these means or resources that, that I described, they have a way of insinuating themselves into becoming our goals and our ends. That's famous with money, right? Um, you need money is an exemplar of pure means. You can't do anything with it except use it to achieve certain things. But it turns out to be, become an end for us. And people can spend lot of their energy pursuing money ostensibly as a means, but de facto as an end. The same is true of other means as well. And suddenly you find yourself chasing your own tail. You're improving constantly your means to life and failing to live the life for which these should be means. Where are we? Adam, where are you in this whole business of life? Now, you can ask the question, so why isn't, why aren't these uh, various, why isn't bread alone sufficient to satisfy my needs? Why aren't these amazing goods and services that we enjoy, why aren't they enough? Why do we need more than that? Now, an interesting observation that I gestured to uh, earlier is that in contemporary world, we find ourselves alienated from precisely these things that we think will give us satisfaction, from the world itself. Um, if you read major thinkers, they all know this feature of modernity. There is kind of alienation between the self and the world. Uh, Myth of Sisyphus is a good example of it. There are other, uh, in other areas, you can domains of culture, you can name key figures that would underscore this. But this is a paradox, right? Because modernity should have been also the time in which we affirm the goodness of the ordinary, everyday life. That's why we spend so much time producing stuff, uh, generating things that, would, uh, that we affirm, that we think are essential for our lives. And yet, we find ourselves alienated in the work of our own hands and in the world that surrounds us. Partly it's because the world is a hostile place. Partly I think is also because the world is populated by folks with whom we compete. <laughs> and so we need to achieve ourselves and that achievement has to occur in a way uh, that, 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 that in which others is always perceived as, uh, as a competitor. But I want to suggest to you toward the end of my talk that there may be one more important reason why we uh, tend to feel alienated from the world and why we can find satisfaction in simply goods that we produce. You can put it almost this way, um, kind of joy in the life itself eludes us and that's the one of the basic problems of, of our, our joy in ordinary things eludes us, and that's one of the basic problems for life. Let's return back to the story of the paradise. Let's imagine a world 
in which we have deeply meaningful work. Perhaps garden to keep and to till, as Adam and Eve did. If you are into it, imagine that you are into agriculture and horticulture. Not all of us are, you know. Um, you can tell where my opinion is. <laughs> I love to cook food. I, I don't like I like to make um, um, make it grow. <laughs> um, uh, so imagine also that relations with our family and friends could not be better. Nobody is there to boss us around, and no structure imposes itself upon us like some iron cage. Imagine also that the land is fertile, the climate is mild and we live in abundance. In such environment, you might think, joy would come unbidden. Now imagine also that on a mound in the middle of the garden, there is a tree bearing what seems to be exceptionally attractive fruit. And we are hindered, for whatever reason, from harvesting. Now, that one tree, desired all the more because the access to it is barred and the taste is unknown, now that one tree now becomes the pearl of great price for which we are willing to risk just about everything. A friend of mine, an economist from the Czech Republic by the name of Thomas Sedlacek, has made the story of Adam and Eve a lesson in the impossibility of joy. You always want something that you don't have. And that's never going to end. That's the, he claims, impossibility of joy. Now, maybe we can discuss about uh, that, uh, that proposition a bit later on. I would like to just slightly amend his claim and point that he's and, and interpret him to mean that he's pointing to a very significant difficulty. And the difficulty is this: we can be in paradise and still deeply malcontented. We can be in paradise and still deeply malcontented. Every paradise has in it an inaccessible tree with amazing-looking fruit. What's more, whatever we think is paradise will undo itself if we fail to genuinely celebrate the good that it represents and only stretch ourselves to things that we don't have. A certain form of contentment is a condition of possibility of there being paradise. Remember, uh, occasionally I used to years back, used to, to tweet and, uh, and to post things on Facebook. And at one point I, I posted something on Facebook in praise of contentment. Now, I posted uh, stuff on politics, I posted stuff on economy, I posted stuff on all sorts of things, of child raising. I've never gotten so much abuse <laughs> than I did when I sung the praises of contentment. What do you mean? I should be contented. You mean I shouldn't improve? You mean I shouldn't somehow try to look what's behind this boundary at which I, at which I stand? Contentment seems like you're putting up with something because we always want to transgress a boundary because we can't quite be satisfied enough to, as Dante says, and that's one of, the, one of my, my, has become one of my favorite lines, uh, as Dante says, to want what we have, to long for what we have. You know, Dante mentions that, I don't have to say any of this, <laughs> Dante mentions that in the, in, in, the, in the third book, in the Paradiso, and he mentions it toward the very beginning of it, and souls in the paradise, they're, they're kind of rank, uh, ranked, you know, with the, on, on different levels, and, and this is now the souls, he's addressing the souls in the lower ranks, and he questions them, how, how come you're not troubled by the fact that these souls up there have so much more than you do, so much more joy or whatever they have, 
I'm not sure exactly what's what's going on, but 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 so much they're closer to God. How come you're not envious? But they're in paradise. How do you have envy in paradise, right? That's the circle that needs to be squared. And then the response of the souls is, is actually stunning and amazing. We long for what we have. If you don't long for what you have, it doesn't matter what you have. You can have the world, you can have heaven. But if you don't long for it, it won't be a paradise for you. Transformation of our attitude and longing is fundamental for anything being a paradise for us. Now, somebody might object, well, let's not invoke paradise too soon. Many people live today in earthly hell while watching a tiny few wallow in paradisiacal opulence. Create first a paradise for all, and then we'll worry about how you relate to this paradisiac glory. It's an understandable objection, but it forgets what I was making, the point I was making earlier, namely that one of the reasons we aren't in paradise is because we don't relate to the goods with gratitude. One of the things that, that prevents anything like paradise from appearing in the first place is the inability to celebrate the goodness on the road to it. Our economy is largely joyless. Our education is largely joyless. Our politics, I will even make a comment on this. Our entertainment, though full of wonderful humor, is largely joyless. Our pleasures, intense and many, are largely joyless. In all these spheres, our belief in the perfect ability of the world and our natural insatiability put us in, put in high, into high gear with competi by competitiveness, they undermine gratitude and joy in the goods that are already ours. When do we rejoice? We rejoice over things we perceive that are good, that we love, and which come to us unowned. And the basic Christian conviction is that the world, even the flawed world, is a gratuitous gift of God who is love. When we receive the world and in it as a good gift, then we rejoice. Now, according to Genesis, God created the world in six days. Each day's work producing something good. And on the seventh day, God rested. Six days. Humans should work as well. Strive to improve that world, satisfy one's good. And on the seventh day, we should cease working. What do we do when we cease working? Now, I have trouble with, with some address. I think I get fidgety, I don't know what to do. I have to find something to strive for uh, during the day of, of rest. And for a long time I thought, well, that, that's the point of the Sabbath commandment, just to, just to rest. And then it, it ended up being instrumentalized, and I thought, okay, we need that so that I can work better. Uh, next day I need it as a form of rest, and maybe that's also, also uh, the, 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 the right thing. But it's interesting that in the Jewish tradition, the primary purpose of, of rest is not to make work function. Uh, the, the, the primary emphasis is actually reversed. On the day of rest, it's from the rest that everything flows. And God's day of rest is the first day of humanity. So the week begins with Sabbath, with rest. It doesn't begin with, with whatever, first day, right? For a Sunday or... It, doesn't begin with, it begins with seventh day. Or the seventh day is the first day. Because it begins out of sense of the goodness and rightness of what, what is. And so I discovered that in the Jewish tradition, uh, often, the point is not that you don't work on the Sabbath day. The point is that you don't strive on the Sabbath day. Now that's even harder for me. <laughs> not striving, right? 
There's a story, those of you who have read uh, Abraham Heschel's book on Sabbath, beautiful book on, on Sabbath, you, you will know that story of a rabbi who one day went into his garden on the Sabbath day, and he was just enjoying uh, the beauty of the, of, of the creation, as he should have on Sabbath. That's what Sabbath is for, to celebrate what is. Day of contentment. Pronounce it as a day of and so he's walking and enjoying this thing, and then he saw that his fence was torn at one point. And then he decided, well, I've got to, as soon as come, uh, 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 tomorrow comes, I'm going to, Sabbath ends, I'm, I'm going to repair that fence. And then he thinks, oh, he remembers. I'm not supposed to be striving on Sabbath day. And so he says to himself, this fence will remain unrepaired the rest of my days to remind me that on Sabbath, one is not supposed to strive and not just not work. And this absence of striving means recognition in the world of goodness that already is. Recognition that goodness is primordial. It's before any hostility, before any disruption, there is a goodness to be discovered and to be served. Our flourishing will come to be only when we are able not simply to strive, but also to discover goodness of what is and what our six-day-long striving has, in fact, accomplished. And that is the call, I think, of our humanity, call to align our entire lives with God's purposes and with God's goodness in the world. It's not an easy task to do, especially in the world which we inhabit temptations uh, to do otherwise are many. And I will end with um, maybe a story that some of you know. And that's a challenge for us, a lesson from Hitler's architect. Albert Speer was his name. He was Hitler's architect, and later his master of armament. Young man. And the question was, how could an intelligent young man and a brilliant architect like Speer, Speer go along with Hitler? And then Speer explains it to a letter to his daughter, from the letter from which he wrote from prison. In my capacity as an architect, I had the most splendid assignments of which I could dream. Hitler said that I could design buildings the like of which had not been seen for 2,000 years. One would have had to be morally very stoical to reject the proposal. And then he adds, but I was not like that. Speer was, above all, an architect. And as he puts it, out of fear of discovering something which might have made me turn from my course, I chose ignorance. I had closed my eyes, he writes. With his eyes shut, he was oblivious to the crimes of the system that he served unable even to, and he writes it that way, to see any moral ground outside the system where I could take on my stand. The greatness and the tragedy of Albert Speer are one and the same. He was above all an architect. He had a calling to an architect, but not calling. He didn't heed a calling to be a human being. Being above all an architect was his greatness because the singular devotion to his career made him an exceptionally good architect. Being above all an architect was his tragedy because the singular devotion to his career made him an exceptionally bad human being. One would have had to be morally very stoical to reject the proposal. But I was not like that. Where are you? Where am I? How am I? And how are
Your turn? No, 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 because these are questions for you. Oh. Hello? Oh. So, hi guys, I'm Allison Escalante, and I will be moderating our fabulous Q&A. Um, if you guys could start turning in your cards, perfect. All right, we have a good one here. Um, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Um, what are your thoughts on the relationship between Christianity and freedom, both from the perspective of the self and the world? I think freedom is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Uh, freedom, is at the uh, freedom is at the beginning of the story of Abraham. Freedom to break with kind of givenness of his family and to go into something that's unknown. Freedom is at the beginning of the story of the children of Israel, uh, liberation from the slavery in Egypt. Freedom is um, uh, at the heart of Jesus' story. Freedom is uh, what Apostle Paul is about. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Right? So freedom is a, a kind of fundamental category. Now, a key question, I think, for me is, uh, well, what kind of freedom? What is freedom? We generally think of freedom as freedom from. Uh, Eric Fromm, um, psychoanalyst, um, uh, neo-Marxist uh, writer of uh, the 60s, uh, uh, has famously distinguished these two categories, freedom from and freedom for. Without freedom for, being free from something loses its significance, becomes an empty uh, freedom. And what we forget in contemporary setting is exactly what it is that we should be, what are we set for? And to what do we commit ourselves? So and we always think of commitment and freedom as being opposites. But if there is freedom for, then there is freedom to commitment. And only in the freedom for commitment, for something positive, can we find fulfillment? Otherwise, we end up uh, having this empty notion of freedom that uh, um, doesn't satisfy us. So, what's the relationship between what you just said and the current dominant um, idea in our culture about finding your passion? Um, on the blog Powerful Nonsense, uh, it's written, everybody wants to find their passion. After all, passionate people have a zest for life. They've cracked the code and have a direct path to happiness, or so it seems, which is why the rest of us are desperate to find it. I, I think with passion, it's like with freedom. Passion for what? Right. Um, and the kind of celebration of the zest uh, for life, obviously I have nothing against zest, just like I have nothing about uh, against pleasure, nothing against happiness or anything of that sort. But celebration of freedom, uh, qua freedom simply, celebration of zest, qua zest, uh, is also an empty uh, in that you will be passionate, but you might be passionate in a very wrong and damaging way. Presumably, when Speer was um, designing, uh, working as an architect, uh, the, 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 the kind of, he was full of life, right? Um, zest was what characterized him, I'm sure, because he saw his uh, um, uh, imperial buildings being built, I can just imagine it. Um, or put it this uh, put this way in my experience that I had uh, in former Yugoslavia, uh, nationalism, for instance, can be uh, something that, gen that 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 mobilizes our passions, uh, that gives us suddenly new surge of life. We we think everything is changing before us. We're marching into this great great future, and you are. Blind, walking blinded by your passion into the very, very pits of perdition. That's the problem with zest and with passion. I wonder if um, a couple of quotations from your work might shed light. Um, you've written, the proper object of human insatiability is the infinite God, 
who both generates and satisfies human insatiability. And in light of your discussion of creation as gift, you've also written, only when human beings come onto the scene and start working can God's work of creation be completed. Is this sort of the more proper avenue of our passion? Yeah, I, I think that, that our freedom, that our passions, uh, that our endeavors, that our work ought to be aligned with, the, with our human purposes. And it's only if it's aligned with our human purposes does, it's, it, uh, does the freedom or passion uh, and striving have its own uh, proper place and its own integrity. Um, as I see, the, the purpose of God with the world is uh, a particular kind of a world. world that has become the home of God. That's illustrated in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden. It's illustrated at the end of the second book of the Bible, Exodus, where the presence of God comes into the temple. So the temple symbolizes the world that has become the home of God. I'm sorry for this uh, assault with my loud speak. I, can you hear me well? Okay. Um, and so, so, so I, I think once, one, once we align our lives with the true human, our true human calling, all individual callings fall can fall into place. All passions and freedoms can be aligned to serve that, that great, great purpose. Um, one of the questions um, that I've been passed is, could you speak more about the relationship between privilege and the capacity for contentment? For instance, God heard the cry of God's people and called Moses to liberate them so they could be content, not to teach them contentment in the midst of their material reality. Yeah, there is a... Uh, so, so one, one way to think about uh, contentment is to say, well, we should just be content always and all the time. Uh, what, what I gestured at and could explicate more, I think that the contentment is and striving are two moments in the uh, intervals and regular moments in, in our lives. So that striving and contentment are not incompatible. So that work of tilling the garden in the garden of, in, in the Eden, in other words, kind of repairing the world or making the world to be what world is intended to be, and contentment are not opposed uh, to one another. So that striving to eliminate illness, striving to eliminate homelessness, and you can go down the line uh, to, to combat ra racism. I wouldn't uh, put in, in contrast with, uh, with contentment. There are things in the world that we ought not to be content with. There are things in our lives that we ought not to be content with. But the problem is that, that we, have a, we have this... Um, Perfectionist streak in our expectations. Until everything's perfect, I'm not contented. And that seems to be a completely misguided uh, 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 position. And, and we, at, at our best, we never, we never actually enact it. What kind of parent would that be, right? Who always thinks, okay, until this kid is uh, just such, right? Uh, I, I'm not going to be contented. And there's no way why my... Uh, steering my sons in a particular way is incompatible with my delight and contentment in them, right? And it's this, to, to make it, to, to have this dialectic between striving, proper striving, and contentment, I think is, is what, uh, what the 6-1 break in the week uh, suggests. And maybe six one break in a day, and maybe six one break in an hour, so that contentment might not be reserved only for a Sabbath, but might be also there might be space for it in our everyday occurrences, celebrating the goodness of what is and what is good in what is. When I hear you using the word contentment, I keep envisioning kind of a, a sigh of enjoyment. 
suggested that this kind of um, antidote to striving might actually create um, a sort of neurotic striving after gratitude. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how to respond to that one. Yeah, so, so, so stri- striving after gratitude would be, or like striving after joy. It's, it's, it's tough, right? Uh, because there's something almost contradictory between the two two positions. Right? Gratitude is is dependent on recognition of something that's good. Right? It doesn't come as a result of striving. It comes as a result of a particular kind of relationship that we have. Now we can cultivate gratitude, right? uh, but not necessarily striving. So striving also for habit, for joy is is kind of misguided from the, from the beginning. Uh, joy comes when we have proper attitude to the goods that surround us. So this affective side of our of our of our lives uh, that's that's a that, that's a being um, we play place a lot of stock in that. Uh, in the morning, I mentioned a book that I'm uh, I'm reading. Uh, I think it's called Permanent Euphoria uh, by Bruckner. And uh, subtitle is on duty to be happy, and the idea there is a well, you've got to, we never we never put it quite that way, but the way we relate to one another, not one another, the presumption is almost like I am a somewhat inferior human being if I'm not happy. Why aren't you happy? Right? Why why are you why are you depressed? Uh, uh, somehow the, the sadness the the brokenness, the mourning, are kind of anomalies that we want to push aside uh, and, and uh, push away because we celebrate the happiness, we celebrate um, uh, joy. But that, I think, is, is deeply mistaken. If happiness and joy come, they come, they supervene on what happens otherwise in our lives or how we are oriented in our lives rather than somehow drumming up uh, good uh, happiness and uh, and joy, and I say that's why I say I just uh, brief, brief comment. Difference between uh, between simple enjoyment of something or pleasure and joy is very simple. There is such a thing as a pleasure pill. You can take something to feel pleasure. Uh, I've never smoked. Uh, uh, marijuana, but uh, smoke weed. But that's what people tell me: you smoke weed, and you kind of uh, you feel uh, kind of certain it's full state. You, th- th- there is no weed that will give you joy, <laughs> right? There's no joy pill, and the reason for it because joy, unlike pleasure, uh, which is simply a state of our of our body and of our of our emotions. Joy always has what uh, philosophers call intentional object. I always rejoice over something. I never just rejoice. I just feel good, but I can never just rejoice. I always rejoice over this or that, over some kind of state that has elicited my joy. And therefore, my relationship to something good with which I have been united is a condition of possibility of joy. Joy comes as a result of it. Not as some kind of a state that I produce. So, you may have already answered this, but but the next question is related. Um, how can we school our society in desire by helping people to distinguish false from real beauty? How can we help people find beauty in people and places that are perceived as broken? That, that that's a that, that's a really central and important question. Uh, how can we find it ourselves? How can we find genuine beauty and stay with the, with the genuine beauty without this incessant restlessness that we have always to get to something else? Restlessness which is fed uh, very much by 
many, many factors, including how we use our screens, right, which is kind of built in into the uh, character of, of, of any of the apps that we, that we have. Uh, so it, it'll take a great deal of, of resistance. It'll take a great deal of uh, discipline and staying with. It might require uh, cultivating boredom, for instance, <laughs> also. It may re- require cultivating the need to get out of something, uh, out of uh, kind of this state of, um, of, of dissatisfaction by something that actually has weight and importance so that we are able to recognize, just like certain forms of hunger are required to recognize certain forms of uh, taste as well. But as it is with food, as it is with everything else uh, that, we, that, we, uh, that we enjoy, uh, cultivation of the self is so incredibly important and then uh, working on the broader culture to, uh, to make sure that the environment is not such that it feeds our baser, uh, baser instinct. But I think it begins with uh, cultivation of the soul and of the self. And, uh, you know, when I look at my life, when I look at our lives, it is actually amazingly short-sighted of us. And I deliberately include myself into to spend so little time with the interior life and cultivating, strengthening, and beautifying the interior life. We are so stretched out, always outside of, of, of ourselves, that we lose resources as to how to properly relate to the world. Uh, if it's true what I said earlier, that every paradise can be a site of dissatisfaction, and that it will depend on the interior self, how to relate to things in order to recognize them as what they are, as paradigm. And I think cultivation of the self is very important. So is, I think, uh, and often uh, people who talk about cultivation of self, they don't talk about need for social change. I, I'm, a, I'm a cultivation of the self and social change kind of a guy, and I think they go hand in hand together. Uh, you need to create circumstances that are conducive. You also need to create spaces which would elicit uh, enjoyment. Spaces architecturally, spaces uh, um, ecologically, and so forth. That would be sites of possible enjoyment. You need to create food that can actually taste like something, not like those freaking tomatoes that taste like nothing, right? And no wonder nobody wants to eat them. Why would you? You, you, you eat them as a punishment for yourself because uh, uh, everything else is worse for you, right? But, uh, so, but this, is a, this, is obviously, this is obviously a matter of cultivation of certain tastes uh, for certain kinds of foods, but it's also a matter of producing certain kinds of food. And it's a matter of then organizing our entire... Example of food. You see how you have to organize the entire economy to function differently, food economy must function differently for you to be able to do what you really want to do, namely enjoy biting into a tomato and smell of tomato. My God, those are amazing things. And majority of people don't have a chance even to, to come at it because we have produced the kind of food that, that isn't, uh, isn't worth enjoying. And you can't enjoy even if you want to. All right, so nobody accused me of plagiarism because I've been working on a piece about tomatoes and how they relate to raising our children, um, and I've been working on that before he made that comment. Um, it looks like we have time for one more question, and this one's really um, uh, on a different angle. Can you talk a little bit about the other kind of calling with Moses? What would you say the key thought is? I think they're referring to sort of the prophetic type of calling. Well, or, or, or I take it also calling in our ordinary, uh, which our ordinary work uh, in the world is. And, and um, I, I think it is, that the, the main point is alignment of uh, individual callings with our, with our particular callings, with our human calling. If the two of them 
are misaligned, um, we end up in the Albert Speer kind of uh, situation. And that means we need to, again, both cultivate our relationship to what we do, but also uh, cultivate kind of more socially and economically the kinds of work that it's for human beings, appropriate for human beings to do as well, transformation of work, uh, as well as transformation of the self, is a condition of us having full-fledged uh, calling in our lives. Um, and that calling will be always calling to striving. That calling will always be associated with certain kind of, uh, kind of a toil. It will be always uh, associated also with certain kinds of sacrifices. And sometimes that's been lost from our, we, we always want to have fun in our work. And it's great if the, the two can, uh, can align, but majority of the work that I observe, and I've studied the work, the work, human work quite a bit, kind of fundamental feature of it is what Hegel called at one point, deferred desire, postponed desire, right? Uh, and then postponement of desire has its own rewards. But there are the rewards of certain kind of sacrifice that leads to uh, the goods, not for myself simply, but also to others. That is a form of alignment of the world, working to align the world with God's purposes for it. Friends, we've come to the end of our time, uh, and it's been a rich, uh, it's been a rich feast together. I want to say a word of thanks to Dr. Allison Escalante. Thank you for guiding us in that time of question and answer. I want to say thanks to each of you who are here uh, today to engage in this conversation. I do encourage you to uh, take a little time uh, as we uh, disperse to meet one another, get to know someone that you haven't yet met, and see what networks we form. And above all, I want to say thank you, uh, Dr. Wolf, for being with us, for stretching our thinking, and for inviting us into practices of gratitude and joy, uh, deeply connected to human flourishing. So friends, would you join me in thanking Dr. Wolf?